The reading is taken from Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 26. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Um, I bet many of us, most of us, will have been in, in that position of being unready for a person's arrival. So I recall with shame the first flat that I lived in after I graduated from university. Um, it was, um, well, if I called it a pigsty, it would be an insult to pigs. Um, one of the lads put his foot through the shower tray um, in the floor, and what we did was we put a plastic mixing bowl from the kitchen on top of it and then sealant gunned it in so there was a kind of plastic lump that promptly went black with mold, um, and it was, it was a horrid flat, thanks to us. And um, our landlord was this guy called Phil. He was really nice. Um, this lovely guy, but it wasn't lovely when he came on an unannounced visit, and there was a ring at the door. Actually, I, I saw him in the, in the window, and oh my goodness, Phil is here. And we were really, we were unready for the visit of Phil. And many of us will have been in that sort of situation when your parents have been away and you're supposed to have, you know, cleaned up from whatever you were doing and you hear the key in the door or um, your spouse is coming home from an evening out and you had said that you would get certain jobs done and um, the jobs are not done uh, and unready. Well, that's a bit like what we have in Mark's gospel this evening, apart from it's much, much more serious. We saw last week, if you were here, that this is the arrival of the Messiah in Jerusalem. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, the king has come. That's what we saw last week. And what we see this week is how drastically unready for the king his people are. Jesus comes into Jerusalem It's quite an angry scene, an angry passage. He's furious at what he sees. This is a lot worse than messy bedrooms and dirty dishes. God's own people are rejecting God. That's what Jesus finds. There is a lot of activity in the temple, a lot of hustle and bustle, but there is no heart for God. And so Jesus pronounces judgment. 
He says that this religiosity, this form of religion, but with no power, will wither. That's what he says. And how the passage works is really elegant and really simple. Um, As Emily read it, I wonder what you made of the thing with the fig tree. Many people struggle with this. It seems really strange. Jesus is walking on the road into Jerusalem. He's hungry. He sees a fig tree. He thinks, ah, fig rolls. Um, But he goes up and it's just leaves. There's no figs. And And he gets angry with a tree. And, you know, we all get grumpy when we want a snack. But this just seems ridiculous from Jesus. He curses it and it withers. And a lot of people struggle with this. But um, think about the structure of the passage, how it's constructed in the way that Mark tells it. You have that at the beginning as Jesus is going in, the thing with the fig tree, he curses it. Then at the end of the passage, they're on the same road again, and Peter, one of the disciples, says, oh, look, that fig tree that you cursed is withered. So you have the fig tree and the fig tree either side. And what's in the middle? You have Jesus in the temple. And so you can see Mark is is showing us that um, Jesus' actions with the fig tree, they have a symbolic power. He's saying that a bit like the fig tree, the temple in Jerusalem, it looks good from a distance. There's lots of leaves, there's lots of activity, a show of people honoring God. But when he gets up close and goes there, there is no fruit. The people have no heart for the Lord, not really. And so he curses it. And for us, um, as we look at this passage, therefore there are two lessons. We, we look at what's going on in the temple, and Mark is saying those guys were not ready for the king's arrival. Do not make the same mistakes. And then afterwards, at the end of the passage, as Jesus is talking to his disciples, he, he's explaining to them a better way. He explains to them what fruitful faith really looks like. And so we're going to see the kind of the, the positive side of the coin, which is not like them, instead like this. And the thing is that for us, this is a lot more than just a history lesson. Because we saw last week that we too, like they were, we too are waiting for the arrival of Messiah Jesus. The Old Testament had predicted the arrival of the king, that one day he would come and he would lay down his life and he would judge and save and he would bring in the nations and lots of different things. And what we saw last week was that some of those are being fulfilled in this first arrival and coming of Jesus, but there's more to come. And so in Mark's gospel, this is a big moment, his arrival, his coming, but he also speaks about a future day. He came this time, that time in uh, humility, but he says that he will arrive again in glory. And so just like them, we are waiting for the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, and just like them, we need to be ready We need to avoid the mistakes of leafy Israel. They were unready, and they they came under the the withering curse of God. We need to be ready, which means having a a fruitful faith. And the thing that is so helpful about this passage, um, especially if you're here and you'd already say that you're a Christian, the thing that is so helpful about this passage is that it forces us to be real and honest at the heart level about whether or not we're ready to meet Jesus. Because my guess is you could have gone into the temple on that day and said to anyone who was in there, are you ready for the arrival of the Messiah? And they would have said, absolutely. Here I am in the temple, just offered my sacrifice. What a great day that's going to be when the Messiah comes. Absolutely, I'm ready. And yet they weren't. They weren't ready. And what about us? 
Um, some of us, I, I guess, will be here. You're still making your mind up about whether or not any of this is true. You know, that's fine. That we're really glad that you're here. But probably more of us sitting here would say that we are Christians, and we're more used to thinking, yeah, you know, things between Jesus and me, it's fine. It's not perfect, but it's fine. Uh, you know, I've been a Christian for ages. I'm well stuck in at church. I serve. I give money. I'm an elder. I'm a small group leader. I'm on the staff. Ask anyone around here, and they'll tell you I'm one of the good ones. But this passage is saying that it's not about what matters is not those visible outward things, that those are the leaves. What about the fruit? The fruit may or may not be there. The fruit is what matters. So it's a passage that's forcing us to be honest and to really think about how our hearts are with the Lord and whether we are ready. So we need to hear what this passage says. We need to understand it. And um, on the sheets there, you'll see I've put down two headings that will help us to see the negative first and then the positive lessons of, uh, of what Jesus is saying here. So first of all, what we see as Jesus enters Jerusalem is a curse on leafy religion. The, the, the thing about the symbolic nature of the fig tree and the temple, does that make sense? I, um, I remember this being one of the passages that first persuaded me that the Bible wasn't written by idiots, but was actually uh, a, a wonderfully clever book and written by people who had thought it through and it was worth meditating on and thinking about. Uh, because we can see here really clearly how Mark has, has arranged the passage to make his point. The fig tree, look at verse 13. The fig tree looks good from a distance. There were lots of leaves on it, which apparently is a sign that there, that there should be edible fruit. Um, the comment uh, that it wasn't the season for figs is confusing. People argue about what that, what that means. Um, in reading this week, I've learned more than I think I wanted to about the life cycle of Middle Eastern fig trees. Um, I was thinking of buying one to plant in the garden, but I'm not sure how well it would go. Um, I think the point is a simple one that um, as Jesus looked at this tree, it kind of looked like it would have some fruit on. But he got there, he got up close, and it didn't. There was nothing there. It was fruitless. That's the basic point. He went looking for fruit, and there was none. And while it's symbolic, you know, for us, it's kind of a general human thing, isn't it? It's not exactly cryptic, something that promises much, but actually is a big disappointment, is fruitless. We can all understand that. And we can particularly understand the symbolism if we come at this from an Old Testament standpoint. Because in the Old Testament, Israel is very often pictured as a choice vine or a vineyard or an olive tree or a fig tree. It's common. And what God wants is a harvest. He wants a harvest of righteousness uh, as his people bear the fruit of love and purity and justice. And if you're someone who comes on a Sunday morning here, we'll see that in a few weeks in Isaiah 5, that God wants that fruit in the lives of his people. And so what we have in the temple is fruitless religion. Here is religious activity, lots of people there. It looks very impressive, impressive buildings, lots of hustle and bustle, an appearance of concern for God, but it's just leaves. There's no fruit that is Jesus' verdict. Now, why not? What's missing? What's gone wrong? Well, as we look at the verses there, 15 to 19, there are two things, I think, that Jesus picks out. And each of them is kind of headlined by a quotation from the Old Testament. The, the, 
the events are simple enough. He goes into the temple. He's angry at what he sees, a, a righteous anger. He, um, he overturns the tables of the moneylenders. They were in there because you couldn't offer Roman money as an offering in the temple. That would be an offense because the Roman coins would have the, the pagan idols on, the emperors who claimed to be gods. So you couldn't offer that. So you had to have it in temple money and people selling pigeons to offer as sacrifices and Jesus drives them out. And then look at verse 17. Look at what he says. These are the two Old Testament quotations that show us what, it, what is the kind of meaning of this. Verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What does it mean that they were fruitless? The first thing is about arrogance. It's about autonomy. The um, first part of the quotation there, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, is taken from Isaiah 56. Um, It's a wonderful passage uh, about how in his generosity and love, the Lord will bring in all kinds of people from all, all over the place to be among his people. From all the nations, God will draw people to himself and they will worship him in his temple, which will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And in theory, the Jewish leaders, the religious authorities of the day were on board with that plan of God to see the nations one to him. Because there was a kind of outward area of the temple called the court of the Gentiles where, in theory, the Gentiles could come and they could pray And presumably they would see some of what was going on with the symbolism of the sacrifices and they would hear the scriptures being read and taught and they would come to learn about the Lord, the God of Israel, and maybe put their trust in him. Only Jesus finds that the temple, presumably that bit of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, is full of money changers and people selling animals. And I don't know if you've ever tried to pray in a pet shop or a farmyard or if you've ever tried to do a Bible study in the St. James Center, but you can imagine that it's not very conducive to making spiritual progress. God's heart was for the inclusion of the Gentiles, that these lost people would find the Lord. But Jesus finds that Israel have completely abandoned that purpose. They're not not into that. They They are about their own business, not his Now, you mustn't um, misunderstand this. I think this is the thing I've learned this week as I've been looking at this passage. What Jesus is objecting to here is not the commercial activity per se. It's not, you know, he's not objecting to the commercialization of the temple. That's not the issue. It's not that these folks were being exploited financially, although who knows, they may have been. The issue here is who is setting the agenda in the temple? God's heart was for the inclusion of the Gentiles, That God's people's heart was for not that, it was for something else. It was for maintaining Jewish rituals and making a bit of money, perhaps. Notice the pronouns. Look down again, verse 17. My house shall be called a prayer, shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. That was my intention for my house, but you have made it. You have done something else with it. That's what it means to be fruitless, ultimately. It's not just a matter of not having a heart for lost people, though that's part of it. It's not just um, about not wanting to see the glory of God spread to the ends of the earth, although that's part of it. The root here is that these people are not listening to God. It's arrogance. It's autonomy. God has his agenda, but they have a different one. 
They won't let him have the initiative. They won't let him call the shots in his own house. God has stated his intentions for the temple, for the Gentiles. But the Jews, they would say, well, it's not really how we see the temple. What we want out of the temple is a bit different from that. It's not house of prayer for all nations so much as for this nation. It's a symbol of Israel, our identity, our national pride. It's a a place of respectable, moneyed Judaism. See what I mean? They had superimposed their agenda over God's. And that's what it means to be fruitless. It's autonomy, refusing to let him have the initiative. They were acting like it was their house, when in fact it was his. And that's challenging for us, isn't it, as we think about our own fruitfulness individually and as a church. Because God says to us repeatedly in the Bible that his heart is for the spread of the gospel as people hear and respond, people from all kinds of backgrounds, uh, people that we live amongst, people that we work with. We are to speak for him, God says repeatedly. But it's so easy for us to say, isn't it? Well, that's not really what Christianity is for me. That's not really me. I'm not really up for that. I've got other ideas about what church should be about. Or or, um, God says repeatedly that a local church family should be uh, the kind of place where people know each other well enough to be like family, really involved in one another's lives, which takes quantity time, it takes quality time. But again, it's easy for us to say, isn't it? Well, that's not really what I'm looking for. I have different ideas about what I want out of a Sunday. Or Jesus was very clear that following him is meant to be something that radically reshapes our ambitions. If we're parents, our ambitions for our children, um, how we use our money. But again, isn't it easy to say, well, that's not really how I see it. To me, Christianity is more about you know, having a nice community or maintaining the identity that I grew up with or interesting thoughts on a Sunday. That is what Jesus found in the temple. It's not about the particulars. It's about the principle that instead of listening to God and being driven by his priorities, they had their own. They had fashioned a religion that suited their own wants and needs. Now for us, um, if you were here last week, this links back into what we were saying about the fact that Jesus is the ruler, he's the king. And that is something that in our, in our kind of modern day and our culture, we find really hard because we don't relate to people in that way as master. Um, I don't know why this has been in my head, but there's a scene in Star Wars where um, Darth Vader, he kind of prostrates himself um, in front of the emperor and he says, What is thy bidding, my master? And I was thinking, we never talk like that. Not to anybody. Not children to their parents. Not to a boss. What is thy bidding, my master? That's a phrase, an idea from a bygone age. And what we're seeing, though, is the danger that we don't even relate to God like that. Because God has laid down his agenda, and it's not our job to haggle or to edit what he has said. Our job is to say, as we read the Bible, what is thy bidding, my master? 
Now, the key to understanding this passage and to, to applying it properly is to understand that it's, it's not just that the Jews in the temple were falling short. Okay, It's not that they were scoring 40% in their spiritual efforts and Jesus is cross because the pass mark is 50% and they should have been trying harder. That is not the issue here. It is much more fundamental than that. It's about their hearts. It's about who is on the throne of their hearts. Is it the Lord or is it self? And what we see when Jesus goes to the temple is that self reigns supreme. These people have made a religious-looking lifestyle that actually shuts out the demands of God. And that is what Mark shows us, the first element of this fruitlessness And he says, do not be like them. So arrogance, autonomy, that's the first element here from the Isaiah quote. Um, Secondly, though, the second part is from um, Jeremiah 7. Let me read verse 17 again. And, um, And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. A den of robbers, that's the second element of what fruitlessness really means. And it's about complacency. It's about complacency. Um, In Jeremiah 7, God is attacking the people um, through his prophet. He's accusing them of living lives any old way, impurity, oppression, having no love for their neighbors. And then they come to the temple as if that makes everything okay. And there's a, a kind of slogan in the chapter that God throws back in their face. He says, say to me no more, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Because they had that, and because they had the temple, they were so complacent. They thought it didn't matter about the rest of their lives, how they lived, because, oh, I'll just go to the temple, and it'll be fine. Um, that's the point of the quotation. I'd, I'd misunderstood this, I think. Um, I thought that the robbery that Jesus has in mind was the money lenders and the pigeon sellers robbing the people. But I don't think that's right. A den of robbers is not where they do the robbing. It's where they run off to to feel safe after they've done it. That's right, isn't it? It's where they feel secure. And I think that's what he's saying about the temple here, that these people who live in a way that does not please God, they then, it's fine, I'll go to the temple And they feel secure there, as if God can't see the things that they have done because they have covered it over with a religious veneer. Does that make sense? That's the second part of what this fruitlessness means. And again, for us, it's really strong words. If you're here and you're not yet a a convinced Christian, my guess would be this is actually quite attractive, what Jesus is saying. Because there's nothing as ugly as religious hypocrisy And often it it takes people outside the church to see that and to feel that. And what we're seeing is that Jesus feels that too. That when people, you know, live one way and then speak another way on Sunday or speaking about God, it's very off-putting hypocrisy. And Jesus says, yeah, absolutely. But if if we're Christians, though, uh, if, if we would see ourselves that way, it's interesting to think about the things that we might hide behind Yes, we, we live our private lives the way we live them, don't we? we? When we're at work or when we're at home or with those who are closest to us or when we're alone or when we're in the private world of our own thoughts. 
And it's really easy to camouflage the things that are not right in our lives by a bit of religious observance both to camouflage it in the eyes of others, but also in our own consciences. You know, we, we comfort ourselves with the thought that I, I come to church, I come to small group, I am thought of as this sort of person by other people, so surely I'll be fine. It's a helpful way uh, of feeling what this passage is asking. Is, um, do we look better under a telescope or a microscope? Do you look better under a telescope or a microscope. Because like the fig tree, it looked good from a distance. And the temple, it would look good from a distance. But what about us? Up close. That's the challenge for us here. That God isn't fooled by leaves. He's looking for fruit. That's where this passage is asking us to be really honest about how things are between us and God. And you know, we're not talking about the sorts of things that are easy to measure It takes a bit of thought about how things really are between you and God if you're a Christian. For reasons I'll explain a little bit later on, I think the key to this is prayer. How do you find praying? And I don't mean whether you pray every day. It's really easy to make people feel bad about that. What I mean is when you do pray, is it it real? Do you meet with God? Is it real? Do you pour out your heart to him? These guys in the temple, they would have prayed, but it was just words. What Jesus is talking about is a person who genuinely apologizes to God for the things that are not right and who seeks his help and expresses genuine gratitude for all that he has done in our lives and to forgive us. This is Jesus' curse on leafy religion. The people in the temple look the part but there's no fruit. When Jesus comes, they are unready, unprepared, and so they come under his curse. Look at verse 20, please, on your own. Look at verse 20 and think about the symbolism. It's very shocking. You think about the tree that represents the temple. And in a few weeks, when we get to Mark 13, we'll hear Jesus talk about the destruction of the temple. He predicted that, and it happened in, uh, in AD 70. Now again, in order to understand this, we really need to hear that the issue is not trying harder. It's more fundamental than that. It's about how our hearts are with the Lord. Is our spiritual life real, or is it just leaves? Which is what Jesus goes on to, to expand upon. If, if this is leafy religion in the temple, if Mark is saying, do not be like that, then at the end of the passage, as Jesus talks with his disciples, he shows us what fruitful faith really is. And that's, that's the second part of, of what we're going to see tonight. Now, the final paragraph, it contains some verses that are pretty hard to understand. Um, it's the sort of thing that when we split up the term card... You think, oh, thanks a lot, Robin. Um, but actually, um, I think if we, if we keep in mind the context here, then we can make a lot of sense out of what Jesus is saying. There are, there are four elements in what he says here. There are four elements to fruitful faith. The first is faith. Uh, number one, verse 22. We mustn't, it's easy to miss that, but we mustn't gloss over it. Um, Jesus says, have faith in God. 
You know, what does that mean? It means believing he's there. It means trusting him. And if you trust someone, you listen to what they say. That's where it starts. It's not, it wasn't some minor mistake that the folks in the temple had made. They didn't trust him. They didn't have faith in God. That's where fruitfulness begins. Um, secondly, the second element is prayer. Like I said, this is what Jesus goes on to. That's why I think that's really the, the true measure of how our hearts are with God. Because the person who trusts God will pray to him. They will draw near to him. Um, religion for the praying person is about God and knowing him. Whereas the person who doesn't pray, for them, religion is obviously more to do with other people and uh, the things that we do outwardly. So prayer is the mark of fruitful faith. But what kind of praying? That leads us on to the third thing, which is where it gets a bit tricky. It, it, It means praying in line with God's kingdom plan. Praying in line with God's kingdom plan, having God's priorities, that's the third element of uh, fruitful faith. Have a look at the verses with me. I'm going to read them out. And Jesus answered them, this after Peter has made a comment about the fig tree, saying, oh, look, you cursed it and it has withered. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not... um, Um, doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass it will be done for him now jesus seems to be saying that god will do for us whatever we ask even if it's something really hard even if it's something really big and weird like a mountain being picked up and thrown into the sea but only if you believe it though only if you really believe it and so that kind of line in where Churches or church leaders become a, a kind of abusive um, saying to people that they can pray for whatever they want and God will do it. But if they don't get it, it's not God's fault, it's their fault because they didn't believe hard enough. And people pray for you know, very deeply personal things, healing and, and all sorts, and it doesn't happen. And that's not what this verse is saying. Um, have a look, please, at verse 23, the precise wording. You need, to, you need to be precise as you read verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. You have to remember the geography. Um, Jesus and his disciples, uh, um, they're walking at this point back into Jerusalem. And it's a bit like Edinburgh where there's hills. So they're walking down um, Craig Lockett Hill, into the, into the town, and Jesus says, if you say to this mountain, but it's not Craig Lockett Hill, it's the Mount of Olives, they're coming down the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus is being very specific here. It's not just any old mountain that you fancy moving that God is saying that he'll, he'll, he'll move for you. It's this mountain, which if you were here last week, or if, uh, if you're an Old Testament um, reader, may ring bells from one of the prophecies we thought about last week in Zechariah 14, which is a symbolic description of when the king will come in the end and Jerusalem is besieged by its enemies and the Messiah comes and he splits the Mount of Olives and half is thrown to the north and half is thrown to the south and he saves the people of God and he triumphs over his enemies In other words, 
moving the Mount of Olives is not just a kind of a generic example of something that's really hard that we can ask God for. It's more specific than that. It is something that God has talked about in his purposes for the arrival of his kingdom. When God moves the Mount of Olives, that is the day that his kingdom is arriving and his plans are coming to pass for his people. In other words, fruitful faith prays big prayers. It trusts that God will answer those prayers. But what it really means is praying in line with the kingdom plans and purposes of God that he has revealed in his word. Now, this isn't easy, but I think that's what it's saying. It's when you pray to this, that this mountain would be moved, that God's kingdom would come in the way that he has promised, then God will answer your prayers. It means praying, your kingdom come. I guess that's the simpler way of looking at it. As we read the Old Testament and understand what that means, it means praying, your kingdom come in my own life, in my family, in the life of such and such a person that I work with or I know. Lord, your kingdom come. Now notice the contrast between that kind of praying, asking that God would do what God had promised to do. Notice who has the initiative there. And the other kind of praying in the temple, which is just words and all man-centered. In the temple, they have their own agenda. Whereas here, Jesus is inviting his people, who, when they truly pray, to get on board with God's agenda that he has laid down. Now, it is worth thinking, why, like, this is quite hard. This is quite cryptic. You, know, you wouldn't necessarily immediately get at this if you weren't thinking of Zechariah 14. <laughs> why is it hard? Well, because I think that's the point about fruitful faith. Fruitful faith says, what is thy bidding, my master? And then searches the scriptures for an answer. You have to want to know what God says and what God wants and what his plan is in order to understand all this. You have to want to know what he has in mind. If you're not bothered, then you you can pray what you want to pray. But if you want to know what God's priorities are, then it takes a bit of work to read and to think. Whereas if you have your own agenda, you won't bother with obscurities like Zechariah 14, even though that is the word of the living God. Pray for the kingdom to come, says Jesus, and God will always answer those prayers. Yes, in his own time. Yes, according to his own fatherly wisdom and all the other qualifications that we always throw in. But Jesus is saying that he will answer. But, fourthly, the fourth element of fruitful faith, when you pray, make sure that you forgive. That's what Jesus goes on to. Verse 25 at the end there. It seems like a bit of a jump in Jesus's train of thought, but actually it does make sense because when you stand and pray that God's kingdom would come and God's people would be saved and God's enemies judged, we know that on that day we need mercy. And if we know that we need mercy, then we need to show mercy to other people because it doesn't fit to be a person who loves the fact that God has forgiven me And then to refuse to forgive the people around me who, by comparison, have sinned against me in trivial ways. 
when I think of what the Lord has forgiven me. So this is Jesus' call to fruitful faith. It's not easy to get our heads into these verses, but we do get the impression of what he's saying. And notice the key. This is the simple point, that it's all about internals. It's not about where you go or what you do or what other people can see. It's about how you pray and forgiving other people and about whether the kingdom of God is what shapes your priorities in your life. It's very similar to what we call the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? You can see the elements in there. Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come. Your, sorry, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Remember the context in which that prayer was given as an alternative, an antidote to the showy prayers of the leafy Jewish temple. So if you're looking for some specific and concrete way to take forward what this passage is saying to you tonight, then try that on for size. The Lord's Prayer. Pray that through. Let that shape your prayers as you pray this week. That's the kind of spirituality. It will not mark you outwardly as a super impressive saint, but it will shift your focus, your heart, more genuinely onto God. If you pray that morning by morning, and follow his pattern, his priorities. That is the path of fruitful faith. That's what it means to be ready. Because when the king comes, this will be his concern. Not that we look the part, but that our hearts really are with, with him. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to be honest about who is in the driving seat of our Christianity, whether it is ourselves and we have made it into something for us or whether it is you. Lord, we long to be fruitful people, to be genuine and real and not just a show, not just leaves. And so we pray, Father, that you would draw us ever closer to yourself, that you would help us to pray this week in a way that is real, in a way that is trusting and shaped by your priorities. Lord, we ask that we would walk closely with you now so that on the day that Jesus comes, we will be ready and it will be a great day to meet our King who we have known. Lord, we sense in ourselves a uh, large capacity for hypocrisy and show. And so we ask that you would help us, that you would strip away what you need to strip away and make us fruitful. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.